Everybody good? Good. So this time last night, I was wondering if I was going to be here this morning. I, about 8 o'clock last night, I had, for those of you who don't know my health history, every once in a while I have these bouts of pancreatitis that just kind of bend me over in a lot of pain, and one hit me last night about 7.30, and so I kind of hung on for a few hours, and I finally took a pain pill and got some sleep, but praise God, I feel good this morning, and um, it's always good to, I said, Lord, I really need to preach this sermon, so um, I'm Gary Brooks, if you're a guest this morning, I'm the the lead pastor here at West Hills, and we're just a church family of folks who love the Lord. We're getting to know God better week by week, day by day, learning what it means to walk with Him, to be loved by Him, to receive His love, and then to love Him back and to love His world and to be a part of His, his family, the church. We are very imperfect people. We have all kinds of flaws. Uh, this pastor has his own flaws and weaknesses. But that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Christ. And so if you need a church home where you can just be real with each other and grow in your faith, we would love to have you consider West Hills to be that place. We are working our way through the little letter of Second Peter. And so I'm going to ask if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm actually taking us all the way back to the passage that we read and studied last week because I want for it to set up this week, and so we're going to begin in verse 1, 2 Peter 1, 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then the verses that we're going to be covering this morning. For this very reason, and that reason being the verses that we just read, all that God has done for us. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Pray with me, please. And so, Lord, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we need these words this morning. We know that all Scripture is inspired by you, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And so we 
pray, Holy Spirit, that you would accomplish those things in our lives through your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. It was in the uh, late winter of my sophomore year in college that a recruiter came to our campus looking to hire college students for summer jobs. He was from Southwestern Publishing Company, and uh, the recruiter looked really successful, dressed successful. He even smelled successful. I think if I smelled his cologne today, I probably would, my memory would go back to that situation. And he gave the promise of making big money selling books door to door. I had no summer plans. I needed to make some money for school. And uh, so I said, sign me up. As soon as school got done, I headed to Nashville for a week of training where you memorize your door speech and learn all the techniques to get in, get in inside the door. And then on Friday night at the big rally, you receive your assignment. And they try to get you as far away from home as possible to make it virtually impossible for you to quit and return home. And so I was assigned to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. <laughs> and it felt like a broken arrow when I got there. I was selling children's Bible encyclopedias. And so I seemed, okay, that's, that's cool. I'm a relatively young Christian. I've only been a believer at that point for about two years. And I thought, I'm glad that they are having me sell this instead of, you know, who knows what. You had to put in 14-hour days, uh, six days a week. And uh, you say, so, Gary, how did it go? Well, get this. In the first four days, a tornado came through town. I had people saying, son, you need to take cover now. And I said, but I've got to sell these books. Uh, a man met me at the door with a gun. I was propositioned by a homosexual. And I was chased down the street by a very mean barking dog. All of that happened in the first four days in Broken Arrow. The elderly Christian lady that I had rented a room from, Mrs. Otto Ketch, I have always remembered her to this day. She said to me when I came home on the night of the fourth day of trying unsuccessfully to sell these books, Gary, God doesn't want you here. <laughs> Those are the sweetest words I had ever heard. She asked me how much money I had left and to call the Greyhound station and see how much a ticket would cost to get home. And as I recall, I had like $2 more than the cost of the ticket. I remember Mrs. Ketch packed me some sandwiches and some cookies, a couple of pieces of fruit, put them in a paper bag, and the next day I was on my way home, feeling like a failure. It was nearly a 36-hour bus ride with dozens of stops in every possible little town along the way between Broken Arrow and Manistee, Michigan. After returning home and being not in any way to feel ashamed by my parents or my girlfriend. They said, hey, it is what it is. We're just glad you're home. I found another job. They were laying, putting in a new sewer in Onekama, in our little village, putting in a sewer line. And I got a job through my girlfriend's dad laying sewer pipe. It only lasted a week. 
And then I got hit with an episode of pancreatitis. I didn't know what it was at the time. It was later diagnosed. And so I was laid out for about a week. I said, Lord, what's going on? And then I got a call from my best friend in college who was much further along in his faith than I was in mine. And he told me about this month-long university discipleship camp that he was going to in the UP. For those of you who don't know Michigan, the UP is Upper Peninsula. And I said, Joe, I can't afford it. I've spent the money I had trying to make money. I'm stone broke. Cost, I think, $400, which would be, I don't know, a couple thousand today, I suppose. And then he called me back and he said, someone wants to pay your way. And it proved to be one of the most important four weeks in my life in terms of developing and strengthening my faith. I mean, like I said, I was still a relatively new believer two years in. To spend four weeks with amazing Bible teachers, um, with probably 200 college students from across the country, intense spiritual growth, small groups for prayer, Bible study, going out into the community and sharing our faith, learning how to have a quiet time, learning the importance of memorizing Scripture, just all those foundational things. Now, a couple of observations from that story. Number one, just because someone looks successful and smells really good doesn't mean you follow them to Nashville or any place else for that matter. Number two, God is able to work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He can take a trip to Brocadero, Oklahoma, filled with all kinds of weirdness and a godly elderly woman and just the right amount of money to buy you a ticket to get home and an illness, two jobs that fall through, a good college buddy and someone's generosity. He can take all of that and work it together for good. And he did. And then thirdly, God can be relentless when he's wanting to do something in your life. I came to the conclusion that God did not want me to make money that summer. Pretty obvious. He wanted to strengthen my faith. He wanted to pour into me. He wanted me to get strong. He wanted me to develop all those basic disciplines and foundational ideas and principles and truths that you need in order to grow because it was the following year when he called me into vocational ministry. And I think he knew what I would need in order to be ready to say, yes, Lord, I'm ready to take the next step. Now, last week in 1 Peter, we discovered that we have obtained a faith of incredible value, a faith of great, great worth, And then we learned that we've been granted all things that you need pertaining to life and godliness. God's given us everything we need by his gracious provision that you need to live a good, God-honoring, Christ-exaltering, neighbor-loving, joy-emanating, sin-conquering life. Everything you need for life and godliness. Plus, you've been given all of God's promises to sustain you. Hundreds of promises in the Word of God to sustain you. So last week we learned that you've been given all of that. Now this morning we're going to learn what each of us can do in order to grow in that faith. Now you don't have to go through all the things that I went through. You don't have to go to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma 
to realize that you can grow and need to grow in your faith. No, God wants you to grow in your faith right where he has planted you today. He wants to strengthen your faith. He wants to fill out your faith. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in the verses for this morning. At the end of the day, the bottom line is it's about knowing God. It's about knowing his son, the Lord Jesus. It's about loving him more and serving him faithfully with all the days that he gives you. Having a faith in Christ that literally sets you apart from the world and that glorifies God. So what does Peter tell us about our faith in these verses? First of all, he says it needs to be given first priority. It needs to be given, be given top priority in your life because it's so valuable. I mean, friends, think about it. You have been given this phenomenal gift from God. Faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not because of works, so that no one can boast. The gift of faith is something that lots of people don't have. Faith in God, faith in his son, the Lord Jesus, who came to atone for your sins, to bear the punishment for your sins, to bear the wrath of God, the righteous wrath of God, to be your substitute, demonstrating how long and high and wide and deep the love of God is, and that while we were all still sinners, Christ died for us. And friends, the amazing thing is you believe in him. I mean, that fact alone blew Peter away when he wrote his first epistle. He wrote, though you have not seen him, he was writing to first century Christians. I'm speaking to 21st century Christians. Though you have not seen him with your eyes, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the outcome of your, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It's amazing. I mean, faith is amazing. There's no getting around it. And so I hope you're amazed by your faith. If you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you should be amazed at that. Because some of your family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers do not believe. So then, taking care of what you have been given, growing in the grace of God, strengthening your faith, should be given what? High priority in your life. God is saying, what will you do now with what I've given you? It should be given of greater importance than most anything else. C.S. Lewis said of the Christian faith, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so either your faith in Christ is of no importance, worthless, foolishness, or it is of infinite importance, more important than anything else, but it cannot be only moderately important. And yet, it feels as if maybe a lot of Christians treat it as being moderately important. So Peter says, make every effort. Make every effort. Use all, all of your energy to strengthen your faith, to take care of your faith, to make your faith all that it can be. Don Carson refers to it as grace-driven effort, effort that is driven by the grace of God. 
It's because of God's grace that you want to make the effort to strengthen your faith. Make every effort, he says. And so there's both intentionality and intensity in what Peter says. The intentionality is the simple word make. You're going to make something happen with your faith. You're going to do something with your faith. The intensity is in the phrase every effort. Make every effort. You're going to do something with your faith and it's going to require effort. It's going to require that you do something, you put some, put some, some effort into this thing. There's determination and resolve. I'm going to do something with my faith, and it's going to require that I put some effort into it because it's not going to happen on its own. Your faith will not become all that it needs to become simply by you being here every week. It's a major part of it. But what about the other six days of the week? What about all of the other waking hours? If I don't make every effort to do this, my faith will not grow. In fact, friends, if you do not make every effort to do these things with your faith, your faith will diminish. You see, it's a mistake to think that salvation by faith alone means that it requires no effort on your part. What you find in the Bible, what you find in the Bible is that true faith calls forth a considerable amount of exertion on the part of those that you read about in both Old and New Testaments. I mean, think for a minute. Noah exerted tremendous effort for 50 to 60 years to build that boat and to stand up in a world of ungodliness and to preach to the people of his day. Abram becomes Abraham, exerted great effort in following God in the direction that God said to go. Moses, Joshua, Ruth, Esther, Daniel... Daniel's friends, they required effort on their part. The Israelites themselves, even though they, they failed miserably, like, like we fail miserably, for the Israelites to stand against all of the pagan influences of the nations around them required tremendous effort to be faithful to God. And the same is true in the New Testament as well. <clears throat> How many of you ever gone on a float trip? Most of us. Um, what do you do on a float trip? You float. Absolutely. You float. I mean, you go with the current. You eat your snacks. You take in the scenery. You soak up the rays. You sip a beverage. You relax. Maybe every once in a while you jump in the water to cool off. Then you get back in and you float some more. But for the most part, you just really don't do anything that involves exertion. <laughs> you just let the current carry you downstream. You see, I wonder if a lot of Christians don't tend to treat the Christian life like a float trip, floating down the river. Allow the current to carry you. But friends, the problem is, if you, for example, were to launch your canoe of faith in the Mississippi and you don't paddle, you're going to go south. No matter your good intentions, no matter what you hope might happen, or even how much you say you love Jesus without a good deal of paddling, you just inevitably go south. I think the Christian life, rather than being like a float trip, is more like swimming in Lake Michigan on a big wave day. Yes, that's my front yard in Michigan. When the undertow and the riptides are trying to pull you out 
and down, and you're doing everything you can with your feet planted in the sand at the bottom, leaning hard against its pole to stand against the riptides. You see, that's what Peter was trying to repair the believers for. The currents that are always pulling at your faith. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, a book that we received this week, several of us went to a great, great conference together for the gospel in, in Louisville, Louisville. And um, they give away free books. This was one of them. J.C. Ryle writes this. There's a vast quantity of religion current in the world. J.C. Ryle lived in the late 1800s in England. He was a pastor, wrote several books, tracts. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences, but it's not good money. It's not the real thing, which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago, and for us, 2,100 years ago. There are thousands of men and women who go to churches and chapels every Sunday and call themselves Christians. Their names are in the baptismal register. They're reckoned Christians while they live. They're married with a Christian marriage service. They mean to be buried as Christians when they die. But you never see any fight about their religion. Of spiritual strife and exertion, conflict, self-denial, watching, warring, they know literally nothing at all. Such Christianity may satisfy man, and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable, but it is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. It is not the religion which the Lord Jesus founded and his apostles preached. It is not the religion which produces real holiness. No, true Christianity is a fight. It takes effort. It takes effort. The second thing we can say about the faith that God's Spirit's wanting to work in you is a finished faith. A finished faith. It needs to be a faith that's given first priority in your life, high importance. And secondly, it's a, it's a faith that needs to be finished. It needs to be full, complete, not lacking. That's why it says that you need to make every effort to supplement your faith with certain qualities. Because without these qualities, your faith won't be finished. Your faith won't be complete. Now understand, when you first come to faith in Jesus Christ, when you're born again, when you're made into a new creation by the, by the work of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're born again, and you're, you, you see, and, and you have a new heart and new life. When you first come to Christ, you obtain a faith of equal standing with other believers, and in one sense, that faith is complete. There's nothing that you can do to add to what God has already done to save you. There's nothing you can do to add to what Christ has accomplished on the cross. You need not and cannot add anything to what God has done for you. And that's what some people don't understand. They think they need to do something more that believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved can't possibly be enough. But whenever you try and add something to what Christ has done, you diminish the power and the beauty of the gospel. And you rob God of his glory so that you have something to boast in. And that's why we sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light and my strength and my song. 
But in another sense, your faith is not yet finished. In terms of becoming a mature faith, a fully developed faith, it's, it's living, it's alive, it's real, it's breathing, but now it needs to grow, it needs to mature. You could say that faith in a person's life is like a, a, a newborn baby who becomes a toddler, and then they learn to crawl, then they learn to walk, and then eventually they learn to run. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Did I give you those verses up on the screen? I guess I did, yeah. About this, the writer of Hebrews says, about this, he's, he's, he's talking about some fairly heavy heavy things pertaining to the faith. About this, we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It's almost like you didn't used to be dull of hearing, but you've become such. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Effort. Your faith is not finished. Your faith is childlike, is what he's saying. Your faith is immature. It's real, it's living, it's alive. You're saved by grace through faith, but now God says, I really want your faith to become all that it can possibly be because I want for you to be like me. And Peter gives us a list of qualities in verses five through seven. I don't want for you to see it as a list, however, like a grocery list where each item on the list stands all by itself. So you make your grocery list, you got cereal, and so you go to the cereal aisle, you get your Cheerios, and you mark it off your list. And then air freshener, you go to a totally different aisle, you get it, and you put it in your cart, and you mark it off your list. Kleenex, different part of the store, deli turkey, Brussels sprouts, ice cream, dog food. Each item stands all alone on the list. But the qualities and characteristics given here should be seen more like links in a chain. They're interconnected to each other. They gain their strength through their connection with the other qualities. They cannot stand alone. They're worthless if they stand alone. And then he gives us what those links in the chain are. Virtue. He says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. That means goodness, integrity, uh, dignity of, of character. It means doing the right thing regardless of the cost. Doing that which is honorable in every situation. Which means that a virtuous person is going to be a person of courage. A person is pretty bold to paddle upstream when everybody else is wanting to float with the current. A virtuous person is not ashamed of their faith. They're bold in the face of opposition. And so Peter says, make every effort to furnish your faith with virtue. That'll make your faith more beautiful, richer, deeper. And then to virtue, add knowledge. And we touched on that last week. We're talking specifically about the knowledge of God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's lots of knowledge in the world, lots of things you can know in the world. 
that are continually competing for your attention and for you to give yourself to. Come over here and learn this and come over here and learn this. Not that, not that any of those are necessarily wrong. Some of them might be. But Peter's talking about the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his son, the Lord Jesus. It is the objective knowledge of God that he's revealed to us right here and in the person of his son that then becomes a personal, experiential knowledge for the believer. You can see why Peter keeps pressing knowledge. Chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power is granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Here in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. And then he will end his letter, 318, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge plays a key role if you're to run the race well and to finish the race. You're going to have to have knowledge, an increasing knowledge of God, a personal knowledge of Jesus The story is told of a religious gathering where a famous actor and an elderly minister were on stage together. They were both present. And the actor, he wasn't on the program, but nevertheless he was asked by the MC to come forward and, and recite something or, or do something. And at a bit of a loss, he turned to the elderly minister sitting next to him and, and whispered, I really don't know what to do. And the minister, the pastor, had a, his Bible with him and he gave him his Bible and he said, read Psalm 23. And the actor said, well, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with Psalm 23. I'll do that. And so he got up and very eloquently recited and read, read Psalm 23 from the pastor's Bible. And then he really didn't know what to do when he was done. And so he said, I'm going to ask the minister if he would just come up here and maybe talk about Psalm 23 a little bit. So the actor sat down, the minister got up, and he proceeded to simply read Psalm 23. He sat down. And the actor turned to the minister and said, you did much better than I, and now I understand why. I knew the psalm, but you knew the shepherd. See, that's the knowledge that you want to develop in your life. You want to know the shepherd. And you want for a day to feel wasted if you have not gotten to know the shepherd more. Do you see why Peter presses knowledge? Friends, this is a treasure trove about God. And yet we act as if it doesn't exist or as if we have enough knowledge. An illustration that was used this week by one of the speakers, I won't do nearly as good of a job as they did, but essentially the idea of you, you meet the woman that you want to marry and you know her for six months and you get married to her and then the day after you're married you say, okay, I think that's probably, I don't really need to know anything more about you. I know enough. You know, to do that with God. It's one thing for me to know as much as I possibly can about my wife, but to know everything I possibly can about God and his son Jesus. That's why Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And self-control. Self-control. 
How many parents of young children do we have here this morning? Fair number. How many parents of teenagers do we have here this morning? A few more. Are you able to control your kids perfectly? I mean, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, especially if, if they're determined not to control themselves. I mean, I've seen parents in grocery stores where the child is out of control and the parent does not know what to do. I mean, sure, there are obviously things that parents can do to control their kids. There's the place for training and discipline so that they learn how to act in public, for example. But if the child is stubbornly determined not to control themselves, it's tough to do otherwise. The word here for believers is very simple. Begin to control yourselves. Start saying no to your ungodly passions. Start saying no to your stubborn, defiant spirit. Start saying no to your temper tantrums. Start figuring out when and where you are most tempted and avoid those situations. Self-control. Start figuring out what triggers your anger. Self-control. Start figuring out what triggers your impatience, your quick tongue. Self-control. Because Why? Because God has given you everything you need to accomplish that. Make every effort to supplement your faith with self-control. Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's a pretty vivid description of a man's life who doesn't have any self-control. Titus The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The theme of the conference we went to was that we are called to be distinct. We are called to be distinct in a good way, in a beautiful way. And this is one of the ways that it happens. You start to renounce those things that are out of control in your life. Identify those areas where there is no control or there's very little control. Or you just kind of find yourself caving in. You say, Spirit of God, work self-control in my life. And then to self-control, you add steadfastness. Steadfastness. There was a book written a number of years ago that some of you might be familiar with by Eugene Peterson. The title of the book A long obedience in the same direction. I love that title. A long obedience in the same direction. That's steadfastness. A long long obedience, not a short sprint, and then you quit. And it's not in all different directions, but a long obedience, a long road, a road that takes a lifetime to travel over all kinds of terrain, sunny days and stormy days, pleasant circumstances and dire circumstances, a long obedience in the same direction. You just keep on keeping on. When I was in uh, high school, my dad bought a little sailboat, a little sunfish, and I was the only one in the family who really enjoyed taking it out and you loved for there to be a day where there was a pretty decent wind, not like the waves that you saw in that picture a few minutes ago, but a real good, strong wind that can push you across the lake. And you, the boat is leaning up, and you're leaning back, and you've got the sail billowed out, and you're scooting across the water. 
And what you want to do is you want to pick a, a spot. Portage Lake is about three miles long, mile and a half wide. And you want to pick a spot on the opposite shore on a good day because if you don't, you'll just sort of veer off course. And so you pick a spot and you fix your eyes on that spot and you just keep doing whatever you have to do to aim at your destination. Steadfastness is picking a spot on the far shore and fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, and you don't take your eyes off of that spot. A long obedience in the same direction will make you steadfast. Add to steadfastness godliness. Godliness. Essentially, it's a life of imitating God. That's what godliness is. You want to imitate God. You want to become like God. You want God's character to become your character. You want God's passions to be your passions. And so you watch God. Behold your God. We will become what we behold. Whatever you spend time beholding, whatever you spend time looking at and gazing at and giving your attention to, you will take on the characteristics of whatever that is. To be godly is to become like God. You behold Jesus, you become like Jesus. And so you imitate him in his love for the Father. You imitate Jesus in his submission to do the Father's will. You imitate Jesus in his willing to sacrifice himself for the sake of others. Peter says, make every effort. Exert yourself to add godliness to your faith. To godliness, add brotherly affection. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Family affection among God's people, God's family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Affection has a tenderness to it, doesn't it? Affection seems to have a, a tenderness to it. It comes out in some of Paul's letters, Philippians 1. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 2. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's affection. There's a warmth that you hear in Paul's Paul's words. Peter says you need to add affection to your life. Add a warmth to your heart. Nurture your heart in such a way. Ask the Holy Spirit to make you affectionate toward others in God's family. And then lastly, love. And so the chain begins with faith and it ends with love. Not surprising, is it? God is love. God demonstrated his love for us in giving his son to die for us. Greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. That's the love of Christ. Jesus loved us to the very end. To his very last breath, he loved us. And then he calls us because he wants, God wants for us to become like him. He calls for us to love one another with the same love. Why? Because it is by our love for each other that the world will know that we are his. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul cites faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So God's Spirit wants for your faith to become finished, complete. Thirdly, God's Spirit wants for your faith to be fruitful. Fruitful. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the sobering implication 
implied here by Peter is that one can be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. You can have the knowledge of Christ and not be fruitful. You can have the knowledge of Christ and not be effective. Say, Gary, how is that possible? Well, it's possible to start out with great gusto. It's possible to start out with great enthusiasm in the Christian life, but then to, 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 to start going with the current. And you, and you become lazy and apathetic and indifferent and careless in the things of God and the things of personal disciplines in your life and having quiet times and reading the Bible and spending time with God's people and coming to church and saying no to sin and pushing, pushing the world's messages away from your head and your heart. You're not appropriating all that God's given you for life and godliness because he's given you everything you need and you're not using it. Maybe this is what the Lord's referring to in the book of Revelation where he says, where Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's like Jesus says, you remember, do you remember the love that you used to have? You don't have that love today. Your love isn't hot for me. Your love isn't hot for the church. Your love isn't hot for the lost. You've abandoned the love. Your love for me used to be passionate. You, you listened to my voice. You hung on my every word. You were passionate about living your faith in front of others so they could see that you love me. Your faith was making a difference in your life. Your faith was making a difference in the lives of others around you, but not so much anymore. You've become lethargic, and your faith is bearing very little fruit. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being unfruitful. But then let's flip it over on the positive side. That's the negative. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they'll make you to be effective and fruitful. Your faith will have an effect on other people. It'll have an effect on the way other people think about God. <clears throat> your faith will affect the way other people think about Jesus, the way they think about the church. Your faith will be giving the Christian faith wonderful curb appeal. It will be attractive. To, it will smell good to others. By watching your faith, they will begin to come to some conclusions about what God is like. It'll be effective, and it'll be fruitful. Psalm 1, he is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. <clears throat> Psalm 92, I love this one. Those of you who are elderly saints will as well. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. Praise God. <clears throat> And so God's given us everything we need to be effective and fruitful. And brothers and sisters, he is looking for fruit. He is looking for fruit. He's expecting a good harvest. And so whatever God has given you and the Holy Spirit apportions to each one individually as he so wills, different graces, different measures of grace to each one of us, God wants for you to be faithful with what he has given you in your faith. He's given you a faith package. He says, your faith package is different than the person sitting next to you. Don't compare yours to someone else. This is what I've given you, and I've given you, I've personally given you everything you need for your life and your godliness. 
Now, what will you do with it? And then finally, the faith that God desires for you to have is to be a far-sighted faith. Far-sighted versus nearsighted. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. That seems like a very strange mixture of ideas. But I think I get it. If all I am able to see is that which is incredibly close to my face, right here, if this is all I can see, I can't see the world around me. I can't see what God's doing in other places. I'll be blind to everything else that's going on. I'll, I'll miss sunsets and smiling faces. If, if I'm this nearsighted, I will miss sunsets and smiling faces. I will miss the colors in a rainbow, <clears throat> and I will miss the color of my wife's eyes. I'll miss seeing people who are in need if I'm nearsighted. I'll, I'll miss seeing people who are hurting and lonely and lost. I'll miss seeing what God is doing all around and what he still wants to do. If this is my world, if my world is right here, I will have forgotten what Jesus did for me on the cross, and I will have forgotten that day when I came into the family of God and had all of my sins washed clean. And I'll simply be living in this little world right now. You want to see the world with eyes of faith. What God has done, what God has done in your own life. Spend time thinking, spend time, friends, looking backwards in time. You know, just preparing this message this week and going through that whole piece in my life when I was 20 years old and in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, and Mrs. Otto Ketch, the godly woman, and, and my sickness, and being chased by a dog, and all that stuff, and, 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 and all of it put together, it actually nurtured my, it, made, it caused me to praise God last night, just to rethink it, to look back and say, God, thank you. I was wandering. I didn't. I couldn't figure out what was going on, but you had me in your hand. So don't be so nearsighted as to forget what God has done, and don't be so nearsighted as to forget and not see what God is still wanting to do through your faith. He wants to do great things through your faith. So let's wrap it up. Simple question. What do people see when they see your faith? What do people see when they see your faith? Do they see a faith that is being given priority over other things in your life because it is so valuable to you? Do they see a faith that is being finished, completed, supplemented with other qualities to make it attractive? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love, Or do they see a faith still needing to be furnished with these things? Do they see a faith that is lacking in these qualities? Does your faith have curb appeal to your neighbors? Is your faith attractive to your relatives, your extended family? Is there fruit hanging from its branches? May the Holy Spirit stir our hearts in such a way as to cause us to give effort to our faith. Make effort every effort that it might be furnished with the qualities that only God can provide. Let's pray together.
Would you take just a minute, please, and respond to whatever the Spirit of God may be saying to you this morning? Lord God, thank you for thank you for the faith which is ours through Christ Jesus. Many of us, probably most of us in this room, have obtained a faith, Lord. It is not our doing. We're able to confess Christ as our Lord and Savior, while many in the world do not. And we give you thanks. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for opening our eyes, unstopping our ears, replacing our hearts that were hardened, hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Thank you for giving us a love that was not there before, a love for Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And you know, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible joy. Thank you, Lord. And now we do, Lord. We want to be distinct from the world in a wonderful way, in a good way. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would make effort this week, grace-driven effort to know you better, to supplement our faith, to strengthen our faith, to make our faith beautiful and attractive to others and all for your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's people agreed by saying,